Hold on to your butt. I'm, of course, surprised that a story had such an immediate and profound effect upon radio listeners. Hooey pleases the boobs a great deal more than sense. Whoa, it's us! We're in a lot of trouble! In politics, man must learn to rise above principle. What the hell are we doing here? We are behaving the way a superpower ought to behave. Well, our behavior has produced some crappy results. What we're witnessing now is the failure of the state. It is a death struggle for our republic. Giving voice to liberty in our time. Joey Clark. Sing it, Cher. If I could turn back time, if I could find a way, I'd take back those words that'll hurt you, and you'd stay. Welcome to the Joey Clark Radio Hour. Now, Troy and I this weekend went and saw Deadpool 2, and I'm saying, hands down, the best post credit scene ever in a Marvel movie. Yeah. By far. Yeah. You actually had it spoiled before we went into the theater. It was fair game. It's like, yeah, tell me. And uh, I was like, how are they going to do it? How's it going to look? And it was perfect. Perfect. It was so perfect. And I'm I'm gonna go see Deadpool 2 again at some point. That movie, better than the first one, already breaking all sorts of records again. Really? In the box office. Yeah, I just saw a quick headline. I didn't get to read into the charts, but yeah, it's already well, it's continuing to break them all. You know, they said you can't do an R-rated comic book movie. Well, who do you think's actually going to these movies? People our age and a little yeah. older. Yeah. I mean, late twenties, thirties. And some kids go to comic book movies, too. But the world is changing very swiftly, very swiftly. And Deadpool 2, I'm so glad it came out. I'm so glad Infinity War, all these movies have been coming out. But yeah, we've we've had a, uh, an embarrassment of riches. Yeah, it's been very, uh, well, fruitful. And also, I will admit wholeheartedly that this has been an escape from the political happenings. Yeah, I don't, I don't blame you for taking a little bit of time out of your day. Because, oh, you know, we've had discussions off air that this stuff is insane. Yeah. And disconcerting. Like I just mentioned to you, I would love to have a Democratic Party that in good faith actually argued issues, whether on immigration or whatever it is, trade. No. Civil liberties, maybe. Maybe we could talk about the you know, mass surveillance in the country. Maybe we could talk about the military footprint abroad and how much it costs. How the entitlement programs are, well, they're not very well funded. Like, just have actual arguments, no matter your solution. Like, you want to be Bernie Sanders and raise taxes on everybody? Right, if that's your solution, let's talk about it. But they're right now, and they continue... What's happened to all the good Democrats? They continue to attack this administration from the right with the Russia stuff. I'm like, all right. It just, and also, like Trump said, the MS 13 people are animals. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they are. And Nancy Pelosi took that to mean, and a lot of people reported as Trump said all undocumented immigrants are animals. I didn't hear that. That's not what he said. But, 
as is common in politics, you often hear what you want to hear and use that to grandstand. And this is exactly my point. They took some language, which is forceful language. <gasps> like Trump is very much shoot from the hip style. Doesn't mean he always tells the truth. Does not mean he always tells the truth. But or, it's or or speaks wisely. Or, or speaks wisely, yeah. Sometimes he says some things, particularly on Twitter, that I'm like, dude. But the, and you say things where you go, ooh, he says them when you go, ooh, I don't know about that. Like in the campaign, when he's talking to Frank Luntz and uh, talking about John McCain. John McCain's, he was captured. I like heroes that weren't captured. And when you first hear, yeah, you wince, like bitter beer face, like, ooh. And then you sit back and go, yeah, he's kind of got a point. It's not the same thing as like the guy who goes and you know jumps on the grenade in the midst of battle to save all his comrades. Like, no, you you got shot down, you got captured, and you survived. Great, but I like my war heroes who aren't captured. Like, what a line. Yeah. So you're like, okay, very politically incorrect, and this is also something I think gets lost in the political correct conversations is it's not just a left-wing thing no they push it pretty hard people it seems to me like people aren't interested in interested in actually having a conversation anymore yep it's almost like when you see these open public committee meetings like when they did it with Hillary or whoever they're going to do it to next, where they sat him down. Basically, it was just an opportunity for those people to yell all their frustrations at her while she sat there like a smarmy individual. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and What a jerk. I loathsome individual. Yes. Um, just to get yelled at. That was basically the whole thing. Like, from me watching that, there was... There were several really good questions, but for the most part, it was just like, how'd you let this happen? I'm pissed at you. My constituents are pissed at you, and I'm going to yell at you. Mm -hmm. And you could sit there and with that dumb look on your face and pretend to smile, you know, glad you took your medication this morning, hill dog. Well, it's just, and it's just bad faith on both sides. It's like, how can we use our, um, this amazing thing we call language to be, well, deceitful, deceptive, Essentially to beat you at a game for power. Not to understand one another. Is there no truth in politics anymore? No. Not at all. So the question is, has there ever been? And if there hasn't, then why would we continue to value what the Founding Fathers have said? Well, the Founding Fathers, some of them... Well, no, but some of them were wise in the sense that they didn't want political parties. Because, you know, the founding, whatever, when you got a, a common scapegoat, like the British Empire, mm-hmm. you can do some cool things. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, we're taking on the greatest army in the world. We win. We have a few principles that animated our, our revolution. Those principles have been in the works, kind of developed from the English tradition for a few centuries now. Some good ideas. But the, I still, I'm a little, uh, I'm a big, I'm a mark. To use wrestling terms, I'm an effing mark for the principles found in the Declaration of Independence. I like that stuff. So you derive truth from them? Or rather, meaning? Meaning is the better way to put it. Okay. I don't think, like, the things, like, liberty. Like, liberty is the best uh, political principle to order a, a society, or at least a government, 
around a society. I don't think that's true in the same way 2 plus 2 equals 4. I really don't. It's more like, well, it's effective, and you, it's like several steps up to how you can make that argument. You have to accept all sorts of other things that are true before you ever get to, okay, how does liberty being your paramount political ideal make your society function effectively? Like, okay, cool. Like, somebody can take somebody's liberty. So, so depending on how you look at that, would that not depend on how you define whether or not truth is derivative of meaning or meaning derivative from truth? I say this mm. because I'm going somewhere. Okay, go ahead. go ahead. The floor is yours, sir. Oh, God. If truth is derivative from meaning, mm-hmm. then how can you have a discourse with anybody and come to a, an understanding that involves compromise. And then just to flesh this out, is say something really means a lot to me, something really means a lot to you, we figure out what's true about the world based on what we really find meaningful and maybe we, maybe somebody finds, say, Islam incredibly meaningful in those traditions. Somebody finds Judaism incredibly meaningful. Right, so if truth is derivative of meaning, if two people look at the same object and they have place the higher value and meaning on a particular aspect of what they're looking at, the truths that they discern from what they're looking at could be two totally different things. Right. Even though they're looking at the exact same thing, say, you just mentioned it, Islam. Right. You know, you, I mean, I guess in, in that case, you could go Sufi, Sunni, Shiite. Right. Well, and any... Three different... A lot of arguments over religion or uh, right. what you're talking about. And we see this in politics, too. So you can have two people looking at the exact same thing, the exact same question, rather, because I, I suppose if they were both looking at the same answer and they somehow came up with different truths, then, well, gosh, that's what they're doing right now. But <laughs> if they looked at the same question and based on what they place meaning in and what truth they get out of that, whether it's you know something facsimile or not, mm-hmm. they get two different answers. So they both come to the table with, this is my truth. Right. This is my truth. This is how I came to it. And, oh, your truth isn't the same as mine. So it means we must fight. So it is now me versus you, us versus them. I'm going to get all these people that share similar truths. I'm going to get them on my side. You get your people. We're just going to yell. And there's a couple news networks out there that will broadcast it. And it will be catered specifically to their vision of what they think you should have. And there are a few people walking around like, I don't really know. I don't I don't really know, but I do care. I do derive meaning from the political process. So which side should I be on? Then the yelling continues to convince those people who are kind of on the fence. Now, they can't stand people like me. I'm like, I don't really know. I have my ideals. Honestly, I don't derive that much meaning from the political process. Like, oh, my God, how can you not care? I'm like, oh, I care about society. I care about individual people working with others to flourish and create incredible things in this world but as far as like what Hillary said what Obama said what Trump said I at this point in my life do not have it influence me that much it's not that meaningful to me and that's coming from a place of, of being there where it was this most important thing in my life for a while you know why they hate that 
Because at that point, they can no longer appeal to your emotion. Yep. They instead have to appeal to your reason. And if they appeal to reasoning, that forces them to work a lot harder. And as you and I both know, as people who have done some quite lazy things from time to time, oh, yeah. it is much easier to take the easiest route than it is to take the more difficult route. Yeah, but then it gets even tougher. And what's strange about going the easy way is it gets tougher and tougher and tougher to get off the easy way once you get used to it. Particularly if you stand on the shoulders of easy giants. Yes, yes. People yeah. who have paved the foundation of appealing to emotion whether you know directly in your family like you're kind of relying on the influences they've given you or just say you have a mentor in the political landscape yep and you watch and see how they quote unquote win arguments or quote unquote get the job done and you emulate them exactly yeah because they found success there but then when all of a sudden you come to a point in time particularly in politics or geopolitics or economics or what have you, you get to a point in time where that easy way is not going to work anymore. Right. And it, you, and what you hope is you've created room to say, all right, there are some pretty solid truths in life, like two plus two equals four. Mm-hmm. They're basic things. And I don't go as far as it, it, truth is subjective. No, there's like true things in this world. There are correct interpretations, certain things. But as you get towards like big political decisions, like how to use political power for 300 million people in a country like the United States, well, it's not like two plus two equals four, but there might be, say, five, six, uh, ten possible interpretations that'll be somewhat correct, and we'll figure this out. It's a factorial, though. And what, We're going to use math, sorry. But you, you hope that uh, that's as far as I go with math. Two plus two equals four. Right. Beyond that, don't even. Right. Don't even ask. That's me. that's too many numbers. Gotcha. Right, exactly. It, and well, it doesn't equal five. We'll call back to old Georgie Orwell there. Uh, but there's room, you hope, for debate where everybody goes, okay, it's the gray area of life. It's where life stops being that hard science and starts becoming a bit of an art. Like, okay, we're talking about people's decisions and their potential and the potential of the country. It's not clear where this is going to go. It's not always exactly clear how it's going to affect every single person if we pass, say, this or that policy. Right. And so you hope when you reach those points where things are a little gray, it's not clear that you argue in good faith. And in my ideals, you do it as voluntarily as possible. Like, if you don't want to do the way I'm doing it, you go your way, I'll go my way. And I think that's where you hope it's going to be. But when people get so hell-bent on, here's how I want to use power, whether it's political power, like you run the government, or it's something like economic power, cultural power. Like, we run all the TV shows, we run the movies, we control the arts, we have all the corporations kind of thinking the same way, and so we're going to enforce things in that manner. Um, I don't like it when it always seems like people's words and arguments are just an excuse to dominate somebody else. I, that's all I see, a lot. I and see that's it how I see on every single news network. Hmm. You know who's really bad about it? Tucker. Oh, Mr. Carlson? Yeah. Yeah, he's he, entertaining, he just, but I don't he just, you know. He just brow- if, if, if I were asked to be a guest on his show, I would have to go ahead and see if it was something we agreed on because if we disagreed i would refuse to be browbeaten by that man oh yeah uh, well then that's the that's the game too like if you stand up for yourself and try to call out this is just ridiculous sir uh that's what he's going for he right. wants you to get upset and they all do it larry o'donnell and rachel maddow and sean hannity and that's kind of the political 
talk script. It's like either you find somebody who agrees with you and you you just talk about how much we agree (laughs) or you find somebody who disagrees but they're kind of eloquent and they'll argue and you get you're ready for their point so you smash them or where the real money maker is somebody who disagrees with you who gets emotional and upset and you can go look at these emotional upset people who don't have any logic to their point of view see i was right the whole time yep and so it means you don't have to make an argument if you can show the other side doesn't have one. And, well, it's a rule I go back to. I wrote this rule in an essay. It's like in politics, you don't have to prove that you're a saint. You just have to prove the other guy or gal is more of a sinner than you. It's, it's a race to the bottom. It's like, yeah, I know we're all schmucks, but I'm less of a schmuck than that schmuck. Yeah, that's, I mean, yeah. That's... It's kind of a race to the bottom. But the reason I brought all this up is because I did watch, and I've got it pulled up here to the key moment, uh, a monk debate. I think it's in Canada that they do these. Um, they'll put them on occasionally. Like one that was fantastic that I've watched on YouTube is a, the God debate. Is religion good for the world was the proposition. And it was Christopher Hitchens and somebody else on the no, it's not good for the world side. And then like Tony Blair and somebody else on the yeah, religion's great for the world side. And it, it was a great civil, entertaining debate. Especially like with two Brits up there, Blair and Hitchens on opposing sides. It's like, oh, we're in Parliament and they're having a great eloquent argument. And so the monk debates, I wish there was more something like this in the United States where there was a civil classical debate television show. I don't know if it would always be good because they just did a new monk debate on political correctness. And the proposition presented, I believe this was Friday night, was what you call, in the affirmative, what you call political correctness, I call progress. On that side of the debate was Michael Eric Dyson, who I believe he's a commentator you'll see on MSNBC. I think he works with the NAACP. Uh, Michelle Goldberg was on that side. She's a writer, for, I believe, for the New York Times, self-described feminist. Uh, progressive feminist. Thus, what you call political correctness, I call progress. And then on the side that said, nope, it's just political correctness and we're not progressing towards squat, one guy on the side is named Jordan Peterson. He's been in the news a lot. He has a best-selling book out now. Like, I've watched a lot of Jordan Peterson. Every single thing he says is not correct, in my opinion, but the reason I like the guy is if I told him that, he'd be like, interesting, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. If you don't come out with your claws out with the guy, he tends to want to have a great conversation. He just had one with Russell Brand. It was a great podcast. Russell's very much on the left, different than Jordan, but they have an hour and a half conversation that's fruitful, and they're trying to understand one another. And so Jordan Peterson's on the what you call progress, his political correctness side or the other way around. It's like, no, 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 no. And he frames it kind of as the political correctness is on the left, which I disagree with, Mr. Peterson. I think there are people, I don't feel browbeaten about it, but I'm sure there are folks in Montgomery, Alabama who would prefer I don't talk about, like, being an atheist on public airwaves. I don't hit people over the head with it myself, but it's just, like, I'm going to say it because it's true about me. That's just because atheists don't carry a Bible. Right, right. Well, we have no songs, too, as Steve Martin and his band pointed out. I mean, romantics, like myself, we have Claire de Lune. Right. Um, 
they're like you know, rock songs, but he says atheists just sing the blues. Remember how into the blues I used to be? Yeah. Yeah. So we don't have any like hymns, which I hope there are no atheist hymns because it, there's it's not really a connected community. Like you could be an atheist, but you could also be like a psychopath. You can be an atheist and you can be like myself an Epicurean. You could be an atheist and, you know, be a, a child animator. Like animate shows for children. You could be Mr. Rogers. You could just care for others. You could be Bernie Sanders, which he says, I believe in people, when they asked him what he believed on the campaign trail. Anyway, the other guy joining Jordan Peterson in this debate is an atheist, Stephen Fry. Oh. He's openly very, very gay. Um, and he's very much on the left. And he's British. So he's eloquent. Not all Brits are eloquent, but he's a learned Brit who's eloquent. Right. And this is the point I have queued up in the debate, his opening statement. I'm not going to play the whole of his opening statement. It's only like a couple minutes here. Because Peterson, I think, incorrectly sums up political correctness and the problem it is it's on the left, the excesses of the left. And there's plenty of excesses to go around on the left. And he asked a really good question. I don't think it was appropriate for the debate, but Peterson asked the question, I'm asking my friends on the left, how do you distinguish, say, radical leftism that's too politically correct and could lead to pretty terrible things like it did in the 20th century, the most extreme being totalitarianism? How do you distinguish the excesses from just, say, your traditional liberal? They can have a conversation. He was asking that to the other side. Uh, people like Goldberg and Michael Eric Dyson defending, even saying it's not political correctness, it's just progress. We're talking about, well, if you look at, as Dyson put it, disadvantaged people like African Americans, we need to be able to take back the narrative and, and you know, be able to speak for our cause. We're about enhancing individuals, but you know we need to understand the historical context and legacy these people trying to find themselves as individuals comes from. And Goldberg says essentially, Michelle Goldberg, the same thing about women's struggles, these sorts of things. So by controlling language, and it's a way of progressing and kind of putting people on their toes to say, ooh, you can't classify me. You can't put me in a box, so I'm going to put myself in my own box. I'm not doing a good job arguing for their side. Anyway, all these folks, including Jordan Peterson in this debate, I was not impressed with. But I was impressed with this little thing I'm going to play. It is Stephen Fry's opening statement. In, in agreeing to uh, participate in this debate and stand on this side of the argument, I'm fully aware that many people who choose incorrectly, in my view, to, to see this issue in terms of left and right, devalued and exploded terms, as I think they are, will believe that I am betraying myself and such causes and values that I have espoused over the years. I've been given huge grief already simply because I'm standing here next to Professor Peterson, which is the very reason that I am standing here in the first place. I'm standing next to someone with whom I have, you know, differences, shall we say, in terms of politics and all kinds of other things, um, precisely because I think all this has got to stop. This rage, resentment, hostility, intolerance, above all this um, with us or against us, certainty. A grand canyon has opened up in our world. The fissure, the crack, grows wider every day. Neither 
on each side can hear a word that the other shrieks, and nor do they want to. While these armies and propagandists in the culture wars clash, down below in the enormous space between the two sides, the people of the world try to get on with their lives alternately baffled, bored and betrayed by the horrible noises and explosions that echo all around. I think it's time for this toxic, binary, zero-sum madness to stop before we destroy ourselves. Um, Amen. The reason that spoke to me is because when he said in between the huge divide, the chasm between the two sides, there are people trying to get on with their lives who are bored, baffled, betrayed. And I'm like, man, he's speaking to me at least. I feel bored, baffled, and betrayed when I look in particular at politics and the cultural wars. Yeah. It's boring, and it's it, baffling is one word for it. It's also frustrating to try to make sense of it. And, folks, betrayal comes from that point of view of, you know, you claim you're fighting for this or that cause, but when I'm thinking of my own life, I don't feel like you're serving me or the public interest. Yeah, forget me. It doesn't feel like you're serving the public interest. It seems like you're serving a particular interest that you're not trying to reach out. This is what we just discussed for the last 30 minutes. And so, bravo, Stephen Fry. He has... He's the only, in my opinion, sane voice throughout the debate. Jordan Peterson does his usual thing. He's not that great of a debater. Um, there's an exchange between him and Michael Eric Dyson, where Dyson calls him an angry white man, in which Peterson comes back and says, you know, at times I can be angry. I certainly have the capability of getting angry or frustrated where it betrays me and what I'm trying to do. But the fact that you included race in that comment, I think, says everything about why I don't like political correctness. Yep. And, uh, and Dyson's response was, well, I wanted you to feel the way others feel when they're put in a box of being black or something like that. And then, you know, what it's like for, say, indigenous peoples or African-Americans, these things. And Peterson came back and said, I'm actually an honorary member of an indigenous tribe in Canada. You know nothing about me. Stop pretending like you do or pretending that I'm ignorant of certain things you're talking about. And that was a heated exchange. But I just, I shake my head in kind of boredom. And betrayal, baffled by what's going on. And I don't know how to make heads or tails of it. Perhaps it's too nuanced to be heads or tails. I think so. I realize that's just a turn of phrase, but if you're if you're controlling the imagination of how to think about something by using your words, by creating a binary thing of heads or tails, then maybe it's time oh, to no, think about it differently. Words are the way to get out of it. A turn of phrase is the way to get out of it. But I do have an answer for that question of how far left is too far left. Okay. And they probably would never say it, but if we're going Occam's razor and the easiest answer is going to be the right answer, then the answer to that question of how far left is too far left, or matter of fact, how far right is too, too far, far right. right, do I agree with it? No, too far right. Do I agree with it? Yes. Perfect amount of rightness or leftness. <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? I do. It's not a matter of, as Fry put it, they're exploded terms. They don't serve us well anymore. Like, why are we taking those phrases from the stupid French assembly anyway? French. You know, I'm open-minded. I want to love everybody, Troy. But not the French! Now sing it, Cher, and make me feel better. I take back those words. 
a phrase that's been stuck in your head? Mm-hmm. What's that phrase? The beatings will continue until morale improves. Hmm. And I've been looking up where does that come from. Uh, and it's there's all sorts of sources. just kind of a phrase that's out there. Oh, okay. I mean, you go all the way back to spare the rod, spoil the child um, comes up from the Bible. I mean... That's not the exact quote from the Bible, but there's been many translations, you know. Um, but the general idea, and it's a good way to sum up what we we're talking about, have been talking about, is you look at this, and I'll let you explain it. You said it well. You look at kind of the, the political scene right now and the way people argue online. Are you talking about when I was mentioning the rise of New Puritanism? That and, like, the beatings will continue until oh, morale improves. Yeah, it, it just seems like in an argument today, the goal, rather than come to understanding, is to win. And it seems that the easiest way people have found to win an argument is to put themselves in a position where they can consider themselves morally or ethically better mm. than someone. But that's just that facet of the argument. I, for me, I fail to see how winning an argument can make you, in any way, shape, or form, better than somebody. Because that's, you know, that's a, that's an instance of value. But I mean, let's be clear: people can be better or worse. Right. It's just a matter of the argument itself, especially if it's an argument over, say, something President Trump said. All right. If what you can distill from an argument ultimately ends up being, see, look at this, this is this person's an emotional wreck, or I have better moral standards than this person, therefore I am a better person. If that's what you can distill from an argument, then there was no sense having the argument in the first place, because chances are you had already assumed that. Right. Right, and I guess you're just trying to prove it to everybody else mm-hmm. in the public forum. Come on my side on this us versus them debacle. Right. And just, I, I've kind of put down those weapons. Um, it's something I've, and I plan on telling, especially young libertarians, because I'll see that often in the libertarian discourse that you need the logic and the arguments, which I agree with. That's the one thing you have. It's what distinguishes you from other parties. I mean, that's why you say you're a libertarian, not a conservative or a progressive, because you believe in certain principles and the logic that flows from those principles. Fair enough. But before you try to beat somebody in an argument or win a political contest with those ideals, those principles, those arguments, get to know somebody. Fall in love with somebody, for lack of a better phrase. Try to understand them, 
create a friendship, and then have the argument. So the argument isn't a matter of proving how much better you are, but more, here's what I, because I care about you and I care about myself and I care about this world, here's what I think is right. Mm -hmm. Now, you go. What do you think is right? And it can come from a place of we're in this together in some sense and we have a disagreement. And I, that's been lost in so many ways. That, you know, in George Orwell's 1984, one of the lines is, power is breaking minds apart, breaking them into pieces and putting them back together again. And the idea is the party controls a totalitarian government that inflicts suffering and literally controls what people think are, is true or not true. Thus the power of tearing minds apart and putting them back together again. But we don't have that. I mean, we have people can make the argument, I think it's true. You have powerful corporate interest in media. The government has plenty of propaganda. But there are a lot of different governments. And there are a lot of different media organizations. And with the Internet, for better or for worse, people can hop up on YouTube or Stitcher or Facebook Live, whatever, and they can argue all they want. They can post on Twitter all they want. And so what I'm seeing is, ironically, instead of it being like a totalitarian center that's ripping people's minds apart and putting them back together again, out of a lust for power and control and being better or dominating people who are different, people are doing it to themselves. Yeah. It's like, hmm, how can I fit myself into this easy answer in order to win power? Well, that's that's interesting to me because there's two sort of programs, if you will, that's all based on the scope and scale of influences of power, whether it be local, and for us that would be Alabama City, or Montgomery City, Alabama State, U.S. government, the relative corporations involved, be it from the agricultural sectors all the way to health insurance. Those influences of power, if you will, and how they influence the people in our area would be vastly different than, say, someone in Maine. Yes. But the second part of the program would be the Internet, which sort of, I'll say, is a blessing and a curse of both muddying the nuance of a reality of existence in a certain area and also complicating the nuance because there's all these other smaller spheres of influences that are... I don't want to say preying upon you, but in some cases they they are. They're at least vying for your attention. Right. And say, listen to me, what I'm saying is correct. And I think everybody, unless you're, you don't think there's no any meaning whatsoever to life, which I think is an absurd position, um, I think you have to vie for people's attention in some way. You just try to do it honestly, is what I would advise people. And again... Try to come from a place of love and understanding and getting to know people, and then because you think something's right and you care about yourself and other people, then advance those arguments and get people's attention. That's the rub of it, though, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Feeling empathy for those that, in many cases, you don't know or even disagree with. Right, and are you stuck on being right? Like, you don't want to admit you're wrong in some way? Or do you really believe what you're advocating for will do the right thing for others yourself. Well, perhaps that's a that's a really complicated question for another day. Is it rather is it better to be right, or is it more important to be right than it is to come to an understanding? Mm. Because 
it seems to me like that's not an either or proposition. However, that's how it plays out. Right. Right. It's just and it come I come back to the political correctness thing. Like I don't have a problem refraining from saying rude things to people. Like especially people I don't really know. Like I think it's fun. And it, it is but a lot easier to say those things. Right. But it's like when this is why I love comedy so much. I talk about how it comes from a place of love and understanding. I think laughter can bring people together where you can say something horrible. But because it's for a joke, and a joke at somebody's expense is usually the best jokes, but when you're pointing out something, say, about somebody that's absurd or contradictory and it's a little bit funny, it allows, it reminds me of an Oscar Wilde quote. Uh, if you tell people the truth, make sure to make them laugh or else they'll kill you. And I think there there's a lot of truth to that statement, that if you want to say something a little rude, it needs to be from a place of, I want you to lighten up, and you're give people an escape hatch. I think that happens a lot, too, in politics. It's like, you're allowed to be wrong, and I'm not going to call you a terrible, evil, dumb, whatever type of person. Mm-hmm. Give people room to think out loud. Like, what we're doing right now, we're talking and thinking out loud. Yeah. Like, we don't have... This is not a pre-planned conversation. No. And and a lot of the stuff I'm saying, I'm not solid on. And that's one thing Stephen Fry said in his opening statement, is this absolute certainty that's out there. That, That orthodoxy is toxic in many ways, because it first off, leads you to persecuting other people for no damn good reason. But also, it leads you to a place where you don't continue to learn. And, I mean, my the stories that make me giggle and just kind of shake my head are the folks who are like, I once was a libertarian, but now I'm a progressive. I once was a progressive, but now I'm a conservative. And if it's somebody who actually has continued to learn, that's one thing, but Often, when you read those articles, there's no great argument. They just kind of change their mind, or really, they change their affiliation. Right. And Orwell has a great quote about that. Trading one orthodoxy for another is not necessarily an advance. That I, and I, I'm going to tell this to libertarians, and it might be politically incorrect there, at this conference I'm going to in Atlanta. But I think there are times when they're, they fall into that ideology, of we must always, through this lens, be presenting what we believe, rather than just being a flawed human being trying to figure out the world. Like, I agree with you guys. I think this is the right way to go in terms of politics. But we might be wrong, and not wrong for all time, but like in this particular moment, do we want to say this or advance that policy? Maybe, maybe not. Like, it, it gets us, we've had these conversations a lot. We're it's like geopolitics. Are you and I both agree murder's wrong. You bomb a bunch of people at once. It's kind of mass murder. But that's how the world works and has worked for a while. Mm-hmm. So how do you end that? And then if you try to end that, are you potentially going to do even worse things? And it's a little bit of the excesses of the left in particular. They, I think, are well-intentioned. Things like in 
inclusivity and diversity and blah, 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 quality equity. But the way they go about it with shaming and shunning people. Intolerance. Intolerance. You know, advancing tolerance in an intolerant way. It's like, eh, I don't know if that's the exact way to go about it. And then also, like, like the issue of immigration. Let's make this concrete. When Donald Trump says there are people coming across the border who are MS-13 gang members and they're animals and drug dealers and rapists and criminals, I'm like, yeah, actually, he's right. Those people are coming across, some of them. Mm-hmm. And then when I hear the left say, no, there are people just trying to you know, make a better life for themselves and help their families back home. The dreamers, if you will. That's also correct. Yep. Both are correct. Mm-hmm. Because people don't fit into these stupid little theoretical boxes we create to fight over. But it makes it a lot easier to move those pieces around the board when they do. Exactly. Makes it a lot easier to stir people up and get them to vote for you. And that's one thing some reason, that's the one phrase that really does trigger me. Like, if you don't vote, you vote, you don't have a voice. Like, to hell with that. I think voting often becomes a muzzle. That you have to fit all the complications that are you, just as an individual person. All the things you think or may think, how you, what you believe, what you may believe one day with time or different experiences... How you're trying to live your life for yourself, for your family, for your community directly around you. Take all that complicated stuff, fit it into an ideology, and then beyond just voting for the ideology, fit it into a party made up of actual other people just as complicated as you, and whittle all that down to filling in a bubble. In a time and space... It's, it, no, that doesn't give you a voice. That's a shorthand kind of compromise way. It's more of a voice than voting party line. It's more of a voice than voting party line. That, but that it, certainly it's more than seems a, like a bigger muzzle to me than it, it, individually picking who you're voting the for. The straight ticket stuff. Right. But I think it's more, than a voice, uh, more of a voice than, say, living in Russia or North Korea or living under a monarchy. Sure. I think democracy is a nice step away from autocracy great but it does if when voting starts to replace you're actually thinking things through and forming your opinions to what is best for me and those directly around me first and foremost i think it gets you in a lot of trouble and it takes away that independence and that create creative spark you need in order to be a successful person in life and so if you don't vote you lose your voice i'm like did the Washington Post have a vote in the Roy Moore, Doug Jones campaign? No. They didn't have a voice, though. Yeah. And they made that voice heard and really influenced the election. So, yeah, you can influence things without well, being suckers for voting for this or that politician. It just, uh, well, this is why, again, I'm worked up, Troy. You are. I'm, I, this is why I go see things like Deadpool 2. Because it helps me release and go, man, life is absurd. The layers of it, the complications, it makes you reflect back and laugh. That was the most I've heard you laugh in a long time. That movie. can you hear me? Let's build a snowman. He started singing Frozen. Folks, thank you for listening. Tomorrow night, I'm not sure what I'm doing, but 
I'll be here talking. Six to seven. Troy, thanks for being here, man. No problem, buddy.